Welcome to The Dental Brief, the world's direct, right-to-the-point podcast produced to get you the information you need to learn and grow your practice. To learn more about our guests and find links to information discussed on our show, visit our website, dentalbrief.com. On to today's episode. Hello, everyone. I've got back with me today, uh, Bob Brooks. Um, If you've heard Bob on the show before, you know he is a uh, transition um, advisor based out of Ohio. Um, Bob has a tremendous amount of experience. Say hello again, Bob. Hey, glad to be here. Bob, we're going to get right to it today. Um, we're going to do a two-part segment here with you. And uh, what we're going to discuss in these two parts is the very first, um, we're going to discuss how to value a practice if you're looking to buy it. Um, so this first session will really uh, pertain to anyone who's looking to buy a practice. Um, and then, of course, part B, Part two, we're going to do uh, how to value your practice if you're looking to sell it. So let's jump right into it. Um, it is problematic. How, how is someone that's looking to buy a practice, how are they supposed to even begin to determine what that practice uh, may be worth? Well, uh, it's, uh, it's a tall challenge for buyers because uh, usually consultants are representing sellers. They're not representing buyers. And so buyers are left to their own devices and they may be very good at, uh, at, at serving dental patients, but they're not uh, transition purchase experts. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So um, there's a lot to know. I've identified over 100 in, uh, variables, or uh, I guess you would call them intangibles that really don't show up on profit and loss statements, things that can affect practices like uh, does a lease for the space run out in six months? Uh, does a spouse for the, the selling dentist work in their practice? And are they undercompensated? Or maybe they're, they receive no compensation, but they're, when they leave, when the seller leaves, they have to be replaced by somebody that has to be paid, right? Sure. Maybe they're paid the right amount, or maybe they're way overpaid. They're, maybe the seller's trying to maximize the amount of retirement contributions, and so they're overpaid. And so... Uh, when, when I do, uh, a, um, most probable selling price evaluation of a practice, I'm looking at all these intangible factors along with the tangible ones. So the first thing to understand with valuations is most of the people that do valuations aren't really credentialed to do valuations and they should not even be called valuations. I call mine most probable selling price. And uh, sometimes brokers' opinion of value, but if you have you know twenty different people establish the value of practice, you'll have twenty different numbers. So you need to look at how they do it. And what we look at is uh, we take the profit and loss statements, and we do addbacks or normalization. And this is what any buyer would want to pay particular attention to. This is the same method that the International Business Brokers Association teaches to their uh, uh, their credentialed wannabes for dental practice brokerage dental practice brokerage credentialing and it's a uh, system that's been used in over 6,000 practice sales uh, a lot of this was uh, established based on the model uh, through CTC associates out of Denver and we certainly appreciate uh, all that they've contributed to that project so uh, when you do the ad backs, you're you're taking out all the cell phones that the kids have, 
Sure. You're taking out the, the light bill for the home that gets paid by the dental office. You're taking out the $30,000 that goes to mom. You're making all these changes. You're taking out the, you know, the $7,500 trip to Tahiti for CE. These are all add backs or normalization. These are all normal things to change because the buyer wouldn't necessarily experience all these things. Right. So you want to see what those, what those changes are. And this applies to buyers and sellers. But you, a buyer needs to understand the purpose of evaluation. The purpose of evaluation is to help the seller establish a sale price. Okay. It's not for the bank. Okay. It's not for any other purpose other than to establish a sale price. Now, if the broker has done a good job of establishing the most probable selling price, then there's a strong foundation for what the price should be. And if that's the case, then the, the parties can move forward with that. Uh, if if that's not the case, then you know a buyer might need to secure uh, you know some CPA help, uh, be more interested in, in securing a third party help to establish what they think is a fair price on the practice. So uh, when uh, the prices are established, uh, the uh, lenders, of course, like I said, don't look at necessarily look at the valuation. They are their cash flow lenders. So what they want to do is they want to do lender feasibility and they want to do buyer feasibility. So the buyer feasibility is if you take the uh, seller's discretionary earnings, which are going to become theoretically the buyer's discretionary earnings, they're in, a, in essence, their net income, and you subtract out their cost of living. If you say it's 120000 a year, if you say it's 150000 a year, I know some uh, associate dentists have uh, school debt repayments of $2,000 per month or more. Sure. So all the expense that they have, uh, if you subtract that out of the, the theoretical net income, there needs to be money left over, right? So uh, that's what the lenders want to see, that it's feasible from the, from the buyer standpoint. Now, the lender feasibility test would be they want to know that you have at least now, this standard has changed a little bit because of COVID. In the past, they want you to, to have at least, say, 120% to 125% of the amount of money that's going to be needed to repay them, theoretically available. And now it's uh, it could be 130% or more. And then we call that a debt coverage ratio. So 130% would be a, like a 1.3 debt coverage ratio. So when you do the math, you subtract your cost of living and you subtract your loan repayment from the earnings of the practice, there needs to be at least a 1.3 um, debt coverage ratio involved with that. Uh, another standard they have is uh, that they generally don't like to loan more than 90% of the value of a practice okay. for their entire loan amount. Sure. Now, they do make exceptions, but you have to have a strong foundation for that to occur. Uh, and there could be a practice that sells for hundred percent of collections. That's a great practice to buy and it's a very fair price, but that those type of, uh, those sale numbers are, are fairly uncommon. So if the lenders generally are, are, and they differ a little bit, uh, you know, you've got the, the top lenders in the country, you've got, uh, uh Bank of America, Practice Solutions, Wells Fargo, Lendever, um, it's uncommon that SBA lenders uh, loan for practices, uh, but they maybe jump in on the real estate. 
they they've all got different standards so their debt coverage ratios may be different but they're uh, they they generally do have a limit to how much they'll loan so if the limit is going to be 90 percent of annualized collections then that means if they're going to loan 10 percent of the purchase price as operating capital then theoretically it would be hard for many practices to sell at over 82 percent of annual collections sure. so those are some numbers to keep <clears throat> in mind yeah, Bob, let me jump in there and talk about lending a little bit just for a second. And when it comes to the value of a practice, is it is it safe to say or is it just a, a, a terrible thought that um, banks will provide some level of protection and also providing evaluation of what they feel the practice is worth um, to kind of give peace of mind to a potential buyer? Um, so if and let me kind of back into this a, a little if the brokers are oftentimes working with the seller um, and they're representing the seller and the buyer is not represented um, by another broker. Um, really, the only thing that they can go by is if, is what the broker is saying and what the seller is saying and what the bank is saying. Am I correct? Well, a lot of times they'll rely on a CPA okay. and that's a, that's a good idea uh, for that to occur. But the okay. banks don't really they don't offer their opinion of value on practices. That's not what they do. They just see if the number that the buyer and the seller agreed with will cash flow. Got it. That makes sense to me. Okay. And as far as the CPA is concerned, I would assume um, that working with a CPA that knows the dental industry very well makes sense, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And the reason why I say that is, I mean, it, it seems like it goes without saying, but I, I do see from time to time CPAs that don't work specifically in the dental industry and they're giving these opinions that I know nothing about. Mm-hmm. Um, how a, a dental practice uh, runs, operates, or works. Any other advice that you have for um, potential buyers and valuing a practice? We've got a few more minutes left here. Well, like I said, there are about a hundred different factors, over a hundred different factors that affect practice value. So, and you, Patrick, you asked previously about anything to anything to look out for. You know, yeah. some common traps. So, I would say. Is there an associate in the practice currently that you're interested in buying? If so, is there a non-compete agreement? If there isn't, they could leave the practice, take a lot of patients with them, and you just purchased a practice that you lost a lot of patients and you'd be in trouble. Now, if that situation occurs, I've been in deals like that. There can be protection language built into the asset purchase agreement so that if a practice goes down in collections because the associate leaves, uh, that, uh, the buyer's compensated for that. If anything would change because, you know, it could be an associate that maybe their spouse is a doctor and works in the local hospital and they just never signed a non-compete agreement and they don't want to, but they're not going to leave and their family's making all the money they need. And, you know, they don't want to work any harder own a practice. So they may be a, not a very viable threat, but you just can't eliminate that risk. And so there are ways to work around it. You know, there are other things that you can look out for, like uh, uh, when you buy a practice, um, is the seller up to date? Uh, In Ohio, there's something called the uh, Division of Unclaimed Funds. And if you have patient credits that you were unable to reach the patient and give them their money back, the money has to be given to the State Department of Unclaimed Funds. And if that doesn't happen then the that the state could come back on the buyer or seller someday and say, hey, we want to see your old patient credits. Oh, you owe us $30,000. And then, you know, that that's a problem. Sure. Uh, yeah. Also, um, accounts receivable. Uh, it needs to be clear 
you know, if the buyer is going to be buying the accounts receivable or if they're going to be collecting the accounts receivable and what they'll charge off for that. So there has to be a good listing of accounts receivable and how that's going to be handled. Uh, there should be a checklist of all the work items that need to occur. And the buyers need to rely on an attorney who has uh, experience with practice uh, uh, purchases as well. And unfortunately, just like practice brokerage, there are some bad eggs in, uh, in the legal world. And there are attorneys, and we run into it a lot in Northeast Ohio, that will just churn fees. Sure. They'll say, don't talk to my buyer. And, you know, we can't even communicate with the buyer sometimes because they want all the communication to go through them. So instead of paying $5,000 for legal fees, they're paying $20,000 or more just because an attorney wanted to create more work for themselves. Sure. Yeah, no, that's, that's, um, it's great advice and something to watch out for, um, for sure. Um, for everyone who wants, um, has more questions for Bob, I encourage you to check out his website and reach him through their practiceendeavors.com. Um, Bob, we're going to have you back on here right away to, to uh, jump into segment B. Uh, Bob, thank you very much for coming on. We appreciate it. Okay, Patrick. I appreciate being on. Take care. Thank you for joining us on today's episode. Did you know you can weigh in on today's topic on Facebook? Search The Dental Brief on Facebook or visit our website, dentalbrief.com, and just follow the link. We look forward to having you join us again on another episode of The Dental Brief.